This episode is sponsored by HSBC. Increased levels of CO2, rising sea levels, wildfires. Climate change is a reality and we need a business plan for the planet. Businesses can be part of the solution. HSBC is committing between $750 billion and $1 trillion to help businesses make a sustainable transition to a low-carbon economy. To learn more, visit business.us.hsbc.com slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit VUSustainableEngineering.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what's on the menu for the 2021 proxy season, the green benefits of blue carbon, the state of re-commerce, and paving the way for carbon-sucking cement. It's a concrete proposal this week on 350. It's May 7th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Vice President and Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. You like saying that title, huh? <laughs> you know, you. might as well go with the whole thing. I, you know, I can just cut it out and say, here's Heather. <laughs> here's Heather. How are you, Joel? I'm doing very well. Um and yeah, just things have slowed down for me now that Earth Day, Earth Week, uh, Green Fin, and a lot of things are over at this. Uh, what normally is a very hectic spring is actually kind of chill, and I am loving it because a month ago, two months ago, I was kind of hair on fire running around. <laughs> and so this is, a, this is a welcome respite, and the weather is beautiful, and what's not to like? So yeah, uh, yeah. how is everything yeah. on the uh, right coast? On the right coast, it's chilly and rainy this week, which is a lovely thing. It's a springy, a springy week on the right coast. Well, we would love some rain here in California. It's not in the cards, but what is in the cards is the Week in Review. And speaking of cards, let's see what uh, cards were played over the past uh, few weeks and actually will be played in the coming few weeks. During the 2021 proxy season, this comes from our Greenfin Weekly newsletter, which I hope you'll be getting. It's just growing like a weed in terms of subscribers. That's great. And Aman Singh, one of our our regular contributors, who's Senior Director of Sustainability Communications at CRI Communications, uh, wrote a great piece about what's going on this year. And, and, you know, it's not in some ways a big surprise. Uh, Demand for climate disclosure is, is sort of front and center 
anything that uh, has the letters E, S, and G in it. It seems to be going pretty strong. Diversity and inclusion. Uh, we would not be shocked to uh, learn about that. And then what she called a smattering of smoldering issues from, <laughs> you know, lobbying activities um, and the legal status uh, of to creating um, BlackRock to a public benefit corporation. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you take away from this, Heather? So I, this is great because I, I've been following the policies and uh, at the proxy level, like what people are are proposing, uh, what investors, I should say, are proposing that uh, big companies do. So I appreciate a lot of these things that are fo focused on social issues, um, political lobbying, Walt Disney, right, being asked to to really focus on where they're, where they're, what they're doing and how they're disclosing. I think that's going to be an important one, especially as as uh, investors scrutinize what companies are doing on on their own front to advocate for policies that are more climate friendly. So I think that will become a bigger bigger deal. I just, we actually saw some of this in action this week with DuPont, um, which lost 81% of shareholders voted for a report that would disclose how much plastic um, the company is releasing into the environment every year. And that was against the DuPont management advice recommendation rather. So that was quite intriguing for me as, a, as, a, as sort of an illustration of, of what's going to be happening. Uh, I was particularly in, in Mon's story, particularly interested to read about the Berkshire Hathaway, what, what's happening there as far as, as how they're handling these climate risks. And they're resisting it uh, at this point, uh, as well as those for diversity and inclusion. So I, thought, I, I don't know, I think it was a great um, piece showing who the leaders are and who who might be feeling more pressure from investors as we get deeper into this ESG disclosure thing. What about you, Joel? Well, first of all, I'm just really surprised at, and, and delighted in many ways about how much the whole shareholder resolution proxy process and an, annual general meetings have become a thing in the sustainability world. If they have been for a while, but usually with a, a few diehard groups that are, you know, have been doing the hard work of like, as you sow, for example, mm -hmm, and a lot of the mm -hmm. environmental groups doing the hard work of, you know, keeping these, uh, these companies honest, putting in the resolutions that generally would get two or five or maybe 10% of votes, which is, which is, um, uh, you know, not bad when you get to the 10% threshold, but yeah, we're seeing some huge, I mean, the DuPont one calling for more disclosure on plastic pollution was huge. And then sometimes, you know, the things line up. So also this week, uh, GE investors voted for a resolution that asked the company to, to report on how it plans to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions across all of its businesses and products by 2050. Um, <laughs> it got 98% yes vote. But it must be noted, big, hairy asterisk, that management supported this measure, which, you know, uh, kudos to them. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And at the same time, we're also seeing, you know, BlackRock uh, being taken to task. Uh, just on Wednesday, BlackRock, the world's largest uh, asset holder and manager, uh, abstained from uh, the shareholder resolution at Barclays around the Paris Agreement. Um, and, and this is after they voted to support the chairman of Wells Fargo, the world's top banker of fracking, according to the Sierra Club. And so, you know, they're being taken to task by activists who are saying, you know, Larry Fink, thank you for all your great thought leadership. We love your voice out in this, but 
we're not seeing that walk backing that talk. And and so, you know, and, and uh, the BlackRock, for their part, always has reasons why it's not appropriate to do everything. But, you know, it's a good, it's a great tension point. I love seeing this. And it's fascinating to, to see how this is going to change, not just this year, but year over year. And of course, as more as the S part of ESG uh, looms larger, as we uh, saw last year with racial diversity and inclusion uh, issues and justice, um, those are those issues come front and center. I'm sure we'll be seeing more on uh, others as other issues uh, emerge. Uh, biodiversity, for example, starting to see some of that. Uh, the plastics one that, that DuPont had is, is, I think, a great harbinger of, of more of those we'll be seeing, not just with the resin manufacturers, but also with, you know, the, the Cokes and Pepsis and uh, and others. And so, yeah, it, it's this has gone from a rarely watched and little known tool, at least among the, the general populace or even the general environmental community, to becoming a, a huge uh, and, and potentially powerful tool. So, uh, great stuff, and and uh, as we're covering and uh, <laughs> in, in Greenfin Weekly, there's my second plug of that for the for the day, and um, but Amon did a great job of capturing this, and of course we'll continue to be covering that as it is the foundation for everything else in the clean economy. But speaking of foundations, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> you wrote a piece on. Carbon sucking concrete, and I cannot say that term <laughs> often enough. Yeah, um, I did. And what do you want to know about it, Joel? <laughs> well, I mean, so carbon sequestering concrete's been uh, been around for yes. a while, but as you say in your lead, it's having a moment. Indeed, um, what's yes. that moment? That moment is that. Um, well, the, the 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 real tipping point was that when the Carbon X Prize recently happened, right? So there's there's been this uh, twenty million dollar energy Cosia Carbon X Prize competition sitting out there for the last few years, and it was very it was very general. It was um, a competition intended to you know find the best solutions for turning captured carbon dioxide into value, or to, you know to to you know it wasn't specific. It it didn't have any kind of focus, but lo and behold. The two uh, grand prize winners, each of which gets seven and a half million, were both carbon-sucking concrete companies, <laughs> startups. Uh, they both are working on technologies and systems that take captured CO2 um, and infuse it into concrete. And I won't get into the technical details. They're, they're, it's a little bit different on both sides. But the idea is that they're taking the carbon dioxide and sequestering it permanently, uh, or at least as permanent as concrete can be, and it is does stay out there for a long time. Um, and that also, the, it could be a, a way of capturing industrial emissions at a concrete plant. So not they're not they're not doing the same thing. These two startups, Carbon Cure Technologies and the UCL Carbon Built team, but they are uh, you know working on similar things, and. Just in the past week, we also saw a, one of the companies actually based here in New Jersey, uh, Solidia, uh, raised $78 million. And what, one of the things that was interesting to me is that they also named a new CEO. And the CEO uh, comes from the car, uh, concrete industry. So it's someone that has knowledge of the, you know, the ins and outs of, of the the codes and incentives and, and the sort of inner workings and economic models of the industry who can help this 
climate-focused concrete company figure out their path. So, you know, there's there's just been a, a flood of money. A, another fun one that I'll mention, slightly different, it's not quite the same in the same vein, but it's Nexi Building Solutions. Um, they're working on lightweight panels, right? So that they can be assembled on site. They're, they're, there's less waste. That's the idea. They've been used by Starbucks um, already in, in a construction project. But uh, one fun, fun fact with them is that uh, two things that are particular note right now with the jobs dialogue in the countries, they're focusing on creating plants across the United States. And uh, one of those projects is in Pittsburgh and it's um, backed by Michael Keaton, <laughs> the actor. So there's just some fun stuff going on in this sector. It's a lot of attention. And, and I think it's, um, yeah, like I said, having a moment. I guess Steel City sent up the bat signal for, uh, for <laughs> yes. Michael to come in. But what's interesting uh, here, and just to take it up a level, as we like to say at Green Business, is, is this is part of a trend we're seeing that's one of these things that's, you know, maybe a tipping point, but it's definitely happening quicker than, uh, you know, after after decades of, of not a lot of action, all of a sudden a lot is going on around the the materials that go into infrastructure that are starting to be have some environmental component and th these are also what the UN uh, process calls uh, hard to abate sectors yep. so uh, we wrote a piece uh, in January uh, on steel zero a, a new project uh, created by the climate group that that uh, bringing together the top steel buyers around the globe, probably similar to what we've seen with Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance and, and some others, uh, to try to aggregate demand for steel made, well, there's, there's something actually called responsible steel. And, and so um, we're seeing that. And then uh, we ran a story in back in February about uh, BMW's plans to source solar aluminum aluminum produced plants that source solar power because steel and aluminum and concrete are three huge, huge, to use your vernacular, energy sucking uh, materials. And if we're going to take on uh, some of the big uh, climate commitments that and carbon reduction commitments that companies and, and nations have made, we have to deal with these sectors along with chemicals and some other energy intensive sectors. You know, can these things be made? using renewable electricity, uh, can use uh, less energy altogether. Mm -hmm. And that's the big challenge, uh, one of the big challenges. And then, because uh, that's the challenge with concrete, it's really it's, the energy yeah. that goes into it. And and also the chemical process when you make the cement portion that releases, uh, exactly. from, I, I forget my chemistry, but from calcium carbonate, you end up with a byproduct that is uh, basically CO2, mm -hmm. carbon mm -hmm. dioxide. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we change the chemistry? How do we change the energy inputs? Because we're going to continue to need ever more uh, in steel and concrete and aluminum, particularly as infrastructure, um, should we manage to, uh, in the United States and, and elsewhere, manage to find the, the funds and the political will to take that on uh, in a significant way. We can't do it with the existing materials. So no, we can't. Uh, in encouraging changes there underfoot, literally. <laughs> and overhead. So I'm going to go to the last piece, which ironically, not so ironically, was written by you, Joel. The great piece about uh, Salesforce's bold play in supply chain leadership. And I just love this idea. Um, the, the procurement, the chief procurement officer and the chief 
sustainability officer. So the chief procurement officer is Craig Cuffey, I believe his last name is pronounced, and Patrick Flynn, who we've heard from before, who had sustainability there, have written a letter to the suppliers of Salesforce, basically saying, you need to uh, set science-based targets that are aligned with the Paris goal. Um, so tell, tell me what's, what's going on here. Well, the letter was just an introduction. The, the, the real uh, crux of it was uh, an exhibit called the sustainability exhibit, as in a legal exhibit, you know, an exhibit to a, a legal document that the company is now going to be uh, appending to every procurement deal going forward. So any new deals or renewal of deals or, or if, if a company purchases, if, if Salesforce purchases more than that the contract called for and, and that New part is going to be with have this sustainability ex uh, exhibit as the company called it, and it's basically asking suppliers to, as you said, commit to a science-based target aligned with the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement, and and then to develop a, a plan to reduce the carbon and environmental carbon footprint and environmental impact of the products or services they sell, and to publicly disclose their scope one, two, and three emissions. So. For the scope nerds, they know exactly what I'm talking <laughs> about. But scope, the scope three is really the key one because that's basically just disclosing all of the emissions in your supply chain, and that's really the interesting part of this because um, most companies are, have have struggled to do that, or have been too lazy to do that, or didn't want to invest the time and, and resources needed to do that. And, and, and this is really forcing their hand. And, and what's forcing their hand is that they're, uh, unlike a lot of supply chain sustainability initiatives, this one has some teeth. Uh, the exhibit has a, a clause that, that says if a supplier isn't in compliance with the terms of that exhibit, what they call a climate breach, it will face a climate remediation fee that uh, basically covers the cost of the carbon credits that Salesforce will need to buy to to uh, offset the uh, emissions that the supplier did not um, manage to to reduce or eliminate, and the supplier is going to pay for that. You know, full stop. <laughs> and so, as you know well, Heather, there's some announcement of some initiative. You know, maybe including supply chains coming out every day, mm -hmm. um, but sometimes there's one that just stands out above the uh, above the rest, and this is one of those. Um, and uh, really, hats off to Salesforce, which keeps showing its leadership in new ways, and, and this is one of them. Yeah, I want to push back a little bit on it, um, and this is something I don't know if you talk to them about. The one thing I worry about is like. How big are the companies that we're talking about? I mean, it's, you said it's everyone. Does that mean every contractor, every small business, every catering company? And if that does, like, how are those, with all due respect, like, do they know what science-based targets are? And should they should they be should they be that uh, in the weeds about it, or should they be focusing on cutting their emissions? I'm just kind of I worry a little bit about like how far the trickle down is. No, that's a really good point, and and it should be noted that Salesforce is their goal is to get sixty uh, percent of the spend. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, you know, under this agreement, at least in the short term, I think they said they're already at twenty eight percent now, mm -hmm. um, and um, and uh, I'm sure they'll ramp that up over time. But yeah, your your point is exactly right that a lot of small businesses simply can't provide this kind of information <laughs> and stay in business, but. You know some of the big companies, and I, I quoted, uh, interviewed someone from uh, 
Marriott uh, International, obviously no small firm, Herman Miller, the office furniture company. Um, and, and those are a lot of the kinds of, of, of companies. And what's interesting here is that some of these suppliers to Salesforce are also Salesforce customers. Uh, so Marriott, for example, uses the Salesforce platform. They're probably a very, very large customer. And of course, they're also a supplier of hotel rooms, I guess. I'm sure Herman Miller is probably of that ilk as well. And so Patrick Flynn, who is, uh, you know, just one of my favorite humans overall, <laughs> but particularly among sustainable, sustainability executives, said it so well. And I want to play a couple minute clip of, of my conversation with him last week about this initiative. And, and it's not so much about the initiative so much as it is about that customer supplier relationship. And he has an interesting perspective about um, how we should be thinking about that going forward. So um, let's, let's hear from Patrick Flynn from Salesforce. For any company out there, climate leadership today has to include scope three emissions and really recognizing one's full value chain impacts. And when we, whenever we're talking about scope three, we're talking a lot about the customer relationship. Either, either downstream emissions where you're trying to really understand and change the, the climate impacts of the use of your products and services, or you're looking upstream where you are the customer. Every supplier relationship is a customer relationship in reverse. So Salesforce as the customer relationship leader really understands and is poised to help show just how important the customer relationship is to the next wave of climate leadership. And one of the best ways to start is to model that behavior. And so when we think about this exhibit, it's a lot about how do we make sure all of our suppliers recognize that Salesforce is deeply engaged on climate action, wants more from them, is there to help them, and really modeling you know, the best, clearest customer voice calling for climate action today. What, what Salesforce has always done is put digital tools in the hands of our customers to help them navigate successfully into the future. And nothing is going to challenge those navigational skills like climate change. Every company, every industry, every geography. And it's this moment where just like navigating through a storm, uh, you know, a ship has a choice to either steer into it or get swept aside by it. And so for all of our customers, climate change is this critical moment um, that can be full of opportunity. And the way for them to really seize that opportunity is to recognize that what their own customers want is changing. And so the, the question we all, all businesses should be asking themselves is who is your most climate engaged customer today? Because before long, all of your customers are going to look a lot like today's most engaged climate customer. Hello, I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor with GreenBiz. Carbon removal projects focused around the ocean and coastline ecosystems known as blue carbon have the potential to be huge carbon sinks. That's why projects to restore mangroves along the coasts have attracted investments from companies like Procter & Gamble, Gucci, and Apple. Mangroves, the tree species 
and complex ecosystem along coastlines in the tropics and subtropics are four to ten times better at sequestering carbon than their terrestrial forest counterparts. Mangroves store most of their carbon in the soil and their root systems, unlike land-based forests where most of the carbon is stored in the physical trees. They also have extraordinary co-benefits, including biodiversity and storm protection. I sat down with Jen Howard, Senior Director of Conservation International's Blue Carbon Program. Conservation International partnered with Apple on its mangrove project in Colombia to understand the potential for blue carbon and why specifically mangroves have caught the attention of companies investing in carbon offset projects. I started by asking her why interest in blue carbon seems to be picking up steam. Here's some of her perspective. You know, I think it's a couple of things. You know, I think one, it's it's new. And so that's always exciting to be sort of on the cutting edge of climate innovation. And so I think a lot of companies that pride themselves on pushing the envelope and, and being innovative have been really interested in blue carbon and seeing it develop. And, um, and that was definitely the case with Apple, who supported us in our project in Colombia, which we can talk about. And, you know, I think also when you look at coastal ecosystems, they do have some unique qualities. So, you know, for the area, they store and sequester um, more carbon than a terrestrial system does, which makes them, you know, very impressive in that uh, sense. But also you're seeing this combination of, you know, negative impacts of climate change really impacting coastal communities, um, island nations. Um, you're seeing this influx of population moving to the coast for, you know, more um, job opportunities and things like that. And that's sort of happening all over the world. But then that means that these coastal ecosystems are becoming more and more important. And I think as we're all starting to realize that, we're seeing that conserving and restoring them is critical. And, you know, the services that they provide as far as, you know, coastal protection, flood reduction, storm protection, um, halting erosion, fisheries, and this big climate benefit that they have as well. I mean, it just becomes a win-win-win for everybody involved. And so I think people are excited about that. And that's really spurred a lot of it. What goes into doing a reforestation project on the coast versus a terrestrial one? And how are they different? Here's Jen Howard. High level as to why is they're wet and salty, and that keeps carbon from breaking down. And so that's a big, important thing. And you know, when I go and I spend a month in West Papua doing carbon sampling and I could drill down, you know, take a pipe and go down three meters and at the bottom, I would find a perfectly formed leaf that probably fell 200 years ago and has just been preserved. So that carbon sort of stored and locked away in a very stable form. And so, you know, I think the difference in a restoration project on the coast versus terrestrially really comes down to the drivers of that loss. And so, you know, if you're looking terrestrially, most commonly it's logging, right? They cut the forest down for its timber products or some other product. On the coast, that may or may not be the case. In some cases, yes, they cut mangroves down for uh, building material, but it could also be related to hydrology changes. So a dam was installed somewhere upriver and it's changed the sediment flow. Um, you know, they're dredging off the coast and dumping it on top of the mangrove. Um, and so when you look at a mangrove or seagrass or salt marsh restoration project, what you really have to start with is looking at the water and how the salt and fresh water are interacting. 
is that optimal for restoration? Because if you just go in and plant like you would do in a terrestrial system or even, you know, assisted natural regeneration where you're doing minimal planting and hoping, you know, just getting it over the hump to come back on its own. If you're not addressing the hydrology issues or doing it in a way, you know, in the right area of the coast where the tide is correct, it's not going to be successful. And so those are some technical issues that are easily overcome. We know how to do it. I think where we run into issues is sometimes when a terrestrial approach is applied to a coastal system, and then you end up with uh, less than ideal restoration projects. This week, Conservation International announced a new type of credit specifically developed for mangroves. The credit came after two years of work in Cespada, Colombia, restoring 11,800 hectares of mangroves. This new credit will now accurately account for the carbon stored in the roots and soil of mangroves, which was undercounted when using traditional forestry methodologies. The project hopes to sequester 1 million metric tons of CO2 over the project's 30-year lifespan. Previously, and I say previously as in last year, early last year, um, there were some projects out there that looked at mangrove, salt marsh, seagrass from a carbon perspective, but they weren't doing a very good job of including the soil carbon component. And for all of these ecosystems, it could be 60 to up to 90% of where the carbon value is. So in a mangrove, it's you know around 60. In a seagrass, it could be 90% of the carbon value is actually in the soil. And those methodologies that previously existed were not thinking about other issues related to sea level rise and permanence. And so they just weren't scientifically robust. In September of last year, Vera, the VCS, put out their uh, blue carbon modules. And this is a methodology that CI supported. We were technical advisors. The authors, though, were uh, Sylvestrum and Restore America's Estuaries. And um, with that methodology, it is a scientifically robust way to include soil carbon and to adequately account for things like unique issues around additionality in coastal systems and sea level rise and other unique threats. So it's the most, um, it's really the only scientifically robust and method that's out there. CI was involved in the development of that method, and that is the method that we are using now in CISPADA, our uh, blue carbon project. Carbon credits rely on three key things to prove quality. Additionality, that the carbon credit is actually removing additional carbon from the atmosphere that wouldn't have been removed without the project. Leakage, that the project is not causing unintended consequences leading to higher emissions elsewhere. And permanence or durability, that the carbon removed will be stored for a long time. According to Howard, we are losing mangroves at such a rate that any preservation can be considered additional. But the real risk to mangroves is around permanence. So around permanence, it's really the sea level rise. So you protect a mangrove today, is it going to, you know, behind the mangrove area, it's what we call coastal squeeze. If you have a city or a road and the mangrove can't go anywhere, um, and then the ocean's coming up, they get squeezed, squeezed, squeezed until it's gone. And then, you know, you might have locked away some of that carbon again in the soil that's now under the water, um, but you might have lost the trees. So there's a permanence issue there. If you don't have that issue, then uh, sea level rise will increase. And as long as that's not happening too fast, 
uh, mangroves and salt marshes and seagrasses keep up by building sediment on top and they just keep moving back with the water. And so you have permanence there. Mangroves and blue carbon have the potential to create a huge impact on our carbon problem. And as more companies continue to invest, they need to know what they are getting into. I would say that if you're looking to purchase blue carbon credits, one, recognize that you're getting a premium product. Two, recognize that you're looking at perhaps something that might be slightly more costly to produce, but has way more of the social community and biodiversity benefits. So understanding that it's a it's a nascent uh, field right now, I think we're going to see it explode over the next year with Suspata really leading the charge there as the first one. And then I think we're just going to see projects rolling out. But right now, there's way more demand than there is supply. And while I don't think that will always be the case, it is the case right now. And so if they're interested in a project, uh, you got to get in there quick to get on the list before the, the credits are gone. And, uh, you know, that's healthy competition, I think. I'm Lauren Phipps, Director and Senior Analyst on the Circular Economy here at GreenBiz. Fashion resale is expected to grow twice the rate of the overall apparel market in the U.S. this year, with growth projected to $64 billion by 2024. And with third-party platforms like ThreadUp, Poshmark, and the RealReal profiting from selling secondhand at scale, brands behind the garments bought and sold on these sites want in on the action. So Trove is the company behind the resale programs at Patagonia, REI, Levi's, and Eileen Fisher, and a growing number of other brands looking to take control of their secondary markets. I am here with Andy Rubin, CEO and founder of Trove and a longtime friend of GreenBiz. I had the pleasure of visiting the Trove Operations Center in 2019, and I am delighted to catch up as resale is gaining even more traction. Thank you for taking the time to chat, Andy. Thank you for having me. So you launched Trove in 2012, but it seems like the market is kind of just now catching on. Aside from you just being really good at your job, why are we seeing so much recent growth in the resale industry? Who doesn't like, who doesn't like nicer things? And who wouldn't want to feel better about the way, that, the way to get those things, right? About the values that we have and the experience and the fun of shopping. They're things we all love. And for anyone who's participated in the resale space, whether you've gotten a Tom Ford shirt from, you know, a third party independent marketplace like the Real Real, or you found a, you know, Patagonia Warnwear jacket from Patagonia, you know, every, these are items that we love. They're brands that we love. And this is, a, this is just a, a better way of making use of the items that are sitting idle in our closets so that more of us can enjoy fewer, better things. So it is going to continue, and I expect it's going to be quite a bit bigger than the $64 billion. How big do you think it's going to get? Um, the numbers that we see across the brands, um, I, I debate with others in the industry. If It's, it's certainly 10% of every brand. Uh, I expect it could be 20% of every brand. So it seems like you're starting to get in on some of that market. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you brought a new brand, Lululemon Online. How's it going for Trove right now? Uh, we're, we're having a lot of fun. 
it is um, it is a moment where those third party independent marketplaces that you mentioned, you know, they've they've paved the way. They've made this whole market more understandable and accessible for so many of us. And what customers are realizing and brands are realizing is when you've got the choice, the brands that we already shop in, the brands that we already love, you know, that by them offering this, it just it makes a lot of sense. So when you can walk into an REI co-op and before you go back to the store, you open your closet and you say, yeah, there's a tent I'm not using. Here's a jacket I'm not using. Why wouldn't you bring that back into an REI? Same thing with um, same thing with Lululemon or Patagonia or Arcteryx, or you can mail it back. And you've got the ability when you're shopping, if you don't know these brands, like if you don't know the Arcteryx brand, they make incredible gear. So maybe you haven't, it also tends to be expensive. So if you haven't been able to experience that quality, when you're on Arcteryx and you flip over to the used section, you've got the trust that when you buy that, it's an authentic item, right? It's certified, just like certified Lexus or certified Toyota. So brands are realizing that these are their items. They're missing the revenue right now. They're missing the customer opportunity, both for loyalty and for new customers. And by owning the space, they can do this in a way that only brands can do. There's, you know, only Levi's can do Levi's secondhand. Um, a marketplace like a ThreadUp or a Real Real or anyone else, they can't do Levi's like Levi's. They won't have the same condition, the same description, the same trust, the same ease in bringing an item back. Only the brands can do the brands. And we're having a lot of fun in supporting brands in those endeavors. So do you think that there will be room in the future for those third-party resellers? Or do you think they're going to continue to, to grow and then maybe decline as sort of taking them taking brands in-house is going to increase? Uh, there, there will be room. So there is going to be room for the independent marketplaces and there's going to be room for premium brands. Um, increasingly, the growth of this space will start to favor brands themselves. Again, because brands realize that they can do this uniquely to the brand. And if they aren't playing in the space, they are spending 100% of their brand and marketing dollars on 90% of their market. And no brand, no brand wants to do that. No brand shareholders are going to be okay with that. And so the growth is going to go to the brands. But there'll be room for everybody. There's a massive market. I think we see, at least from where I'm sitting, I see a handful of brands coming online. I see it growing. And, you know, I think the numbers that I quoted and projected are, are strong, but there's a lot of hesitation that I hear from brands about launching a, a resale program. I think there's kind of the logical environmental benefits of making something once and selling it twice. But I think the biggest fear that I'm hearing is around revenue cannibalization and uh, the idea that customers who would buy something new opting instead for the cheaper option, at the end of the day, the economics are going to be what drive decision making. And I think the talking point that I most often hear from companies like Patagonia is that if you're able to access a new pool of customers that can't afford the premium product outright, you can you know, access this whole new slew of folks that will buy new in the future but I've only seen it as, as sort of anecdotal. Um, so how are you addressing some of the most common hesitations when it comes to launching a resale line? We um, uh, Cannibalization is something that came up a lot more a year and two years ago. We don't hear it as often as we did. It still comes up, but we've got hundreds of thousands, actually millions of data points that show the opposite. 
right, for these incredible brands. So REI spends a lot of time trying to understand, are they, you know, what is the incremental revenue they're driving and at what margin? And those are both incredible um, across all of our brands. And so what we most often hear right now is just uh, bandwidth, right? So brands have a lot on their plate right now, a lot that they're dealing with. And we more spend time um, talking about, you know, we've now onboarded a dozen brands. And so the ability to help a brand when they know they've got to be in the resale space and then they've got to do it in a way that's going to be accretive to the brand. It's going to bring customers in and build loyalty with customers, make the brand stronger, incremental revenue at a, at a profit, right? At, at good margins. There's trust in working with someone who's done that a dozen times and done it at scale. And so the most, I think the most valuable part that we help brands with is saying, when, when we sign a contract and we start working together, we will have a three-point landing when you, when you launch. And then we will work together to build an incredible program for your brand, week by week, month by month, quarter by quarter. And this will be the type of capability that I think we will look back and be surprised that there was a day that brands didn't take advantage of the longevity of their items. So we, we help a lot with the, um, with the concern around how much, how much time will this take and do we know enough to start? One final question. Um, one thing that I think is touted as a theoretical benefit of resale is that getting data points on how things are breaking and failing, recognizing the value of extended product lives that can feed back into design to sort of increase the durability and the longe longevity of garments uh, and decrease some of the more typical kind of fast fashion approaches to, to apparel. Are we seeing that? We will see it. Um, we are seeing the brands we work with right now are putting, they are looking at resale as a way to invest more in the quality of their items because those items have more life and that creates more value for their customers, for the brand and for the planet. Um, what I would say about that is a theoretical point is the biggest opportunity we have right now. We have so many great brands where the biggest missed opportunity is the, is the, um, these brands, the items themselves living a full life, right? So these items end up typically 80% of them haven't been worn in our closets in, in 12 months. So the biggest opportunity we have first and foremost, if we care about the space and we see the opportunity is to get, to make it easier to get those items back in use. As that happens and that becomes four, five, 10% of, um, of a company's revenue, then we will see the stage we're talking about where the data in terms of how to elongate the life of these products will become more central. So what I'd say is let's first create the need for that and then that other piece will naturally follow. And we create the need because brands can make this easier for us as customers than anyone else. And brands are gonna be the one who, who invent this future. And all of our garments can live their best life. You just heard Andy Rubin, the CEO of Trove. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization stories and other things we've mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. And you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, tips, you can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by HSBC. Increased levels of CO2, rising sea levels, wildfires. Climate change is a reality and we need a business plan for the planet. Businesses can be part of the solution. HSBC is committing between $750 billion and $1 trillion to help businesses make a sustainable transition to a low-carbon economy. To learn more, visit business.us.hsbc.com slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. Thank you.